You can go ahead and have a seat. Um, I have been reminded, my name is Luke here, one of the, uh, the pastors uh, of this church, but I have been reminded recently as the football season has kicked off, one of the things that I thought a lot yesterday uh, is that I just love us. And by us, I mean uh, I love this room a ton uniquely. I love our city. I love the greatest university in the entire world, the Ohio State University. I'm just excited to be here, and it's not lost on me um, that, like, I, I have a job, and so I'm going to be here, and obviously I'm excited to be here, and I like being here, but it's not lost on me uh, that in a weekend like this, Labor Day, you guys have a whole lot of things going on in your life and in your family and in your schedules, and so we understand that for many of you to be here, uh, it takes a lot of courage. Uh, it takes a lot of like scheduling and adjusting. We understand all of that. And so uh, just want to lay before you pretty often uh, that we're really thankful that you're here. We understand the sacrifice and the courage that it takes for many of you to be here. And especially on Labor Day weekend. I hope Labor Day me weekend means really good things for you. Uh, I hope it means really good things for your family. Uh, I've been looking forward to this Sunday for a long time. We're starting a new series here, um, and this series has been one that I've been like longing to get to for months. From the inception of the idea uh, until this morning has been months, and I've just been like chomping at the bit for us to get here. We are entering into a 10-part series of talks. It's going to last for a lot of the fall and lead us up until December. And then in December, we're going to get into a Christmas-themed series leading in to Christmas. And so 10 parts is what you can expect in the series that we're starting here this morning. Now, there's going to be the occasional Sunday where we step out of this series for various reasons to talk about some other things. Uh, but if you're here consistently throughout the fall, you are going to get exposed and familiar to a series of events uh, that has been referred to in later pages in the Bible as one of the most important sections in all of the Bible. In fact, in all of the Bible, it has been said that it's the section we are going to look at and the events within that section that maybe most clearly in any pages in the Bible help humanity understand who God is what he's about, even who humanity is, and what's true of us, and maybe even most importantly, the relationship between those two things. Embedded in this section of the Bible that we're going to be in are some of the most famous Bible stories, but far beyond us just talking about famous Bible stories, because I, I honestly don't think there's a ton of value in you just knowing Bible stories. Far beyond that, we think it's in the pages of these sections here that this fall God can kind of enter into our situations and put his fingerprint on his movement in our lives. And we could, at the end of this fall, be completely different people in a way that's valuable and helpful. That's our goal. Uh, we're going to be in a section of the Bible called Exodus. And so if you have a Bible with you, um, if you have a device, feel free to pull that out. Like, no judgment. You're pulling out your phone, uh, texting, bouncing between some apps. It's like, no judgment. We're just really glad you're here. Uh, if you have a, a Bible, you can pull that out. If you don't have one, as always, uh, I run out of creative ways to say everything on that table out there is free. Uh, and so you don't have to exchange a smile a pleasantry. You can walk out that door, grab whatever you want on that table. You can look somebody in the eye, not say a word, and grab a Bible. Nobody's going to stop you. 
Uh, if you want one for family, spouses, kids, whatever, you can just go ahead and take one. We think that can add a lot of value to your life. Now, in this section of the Bible uh, called Exodus, uh, God is on a mission ultimately to define himself, maybe more clearly than any other part of the Bible. He's on a mission to help us as humanity know what is he about? How does he feel about things? What does he think about us? And we think here in 2023, that is hugely important, massively relevant. Uh, if you're anything like me, and I say, hey, we're going to be in Exodus, uh, which is actually going to be really easy to find if you're new to the Bible, second book of the Bible, so really close to the front cover. Um, that's where we're ultimately going to be. If you're anything like me, you ask questions like, okay, it's 2023. Are we seriously going to talk about stuff that happened thousands of years ago under this umbrella of, trust me, it's relevant? Um, I understand that. Uh, maybe you walk in here and you think, like, shouldn't we be talking about, uh, you know, relationships and family and marriage and, and how do I find health in my daily routine, anxiety, worry, depression? Like, aren't there a lot of things we can talk about? And I would say, yes, absolutely. And over the course of the two years we've existed, we have talked about those things and are going to talk about those things. But for this fall, we felt like one of the most helpful things we could do was get to a section of the Bible that's primary goal is for us to understand who God is and who we are. And I'm convinced that if we can know God better, that's going to actually touch every felt need in our world here in 2023. So we think maybe the most important and relevant thing we can talk about are some things that happened thousands of years ago to see who God is who we are, and how might those things connect. And here's why I say that. God's going to define himself, which is helpful to us because it means we don't have to. And maybe even more strongly, we shouldn't. He gets to define him. He gets to say what he's like. Uh, one, one of the things that I, that I feel like feels helpful at times but can be massively damaging to us, and I've been there, is we maybe know of some attributes of God, like uh, love and forgiveness and mercy and grace, and he's present and has his arms open, all these great attributes of God, and we want to say, yeah, yeah, I like those attributes, but I don't really like some other attributes that are maybe confusing or don't feel like good news, and here's what I want to say. God is going to define himself, and that is really good news, because what he defines himself as for humanity is really good news. And so taking parts of his attributes and then creating this like view of God that only makes sense on some of his attributes and not the whole complexity of God, it doesn't serve us in the way that we want it to. It doesn't serve us in a way that we think it will. So very good news. God's going to define himself. One of, one of the most influential Christian leaders of all time recently passed away, a man named Tim Keller, and he said this. I, I think it's really helpful in this conversation. He said, only if God can outrage and challenge you will you know that you worship the real God and not a figment of your imagination. If your God never disagrees with you, you might just be worshiping an idealized version of yourself. And so for us to say things like, this is what God does, this is how God feels, this is what God would want, this is who God is, I can't believe in a God who fills in the blank. It, listen, it, it just doesn't matter. It just doesn't matter. Uh, 
I, I don't say things from this stage that I, I just want to like press buttons or stir the pot or make some waves. The, the things that we say from this stage are wholly designed to try to be as helpful as possible to this room that we love so much. Uniquely, we love this room. Uh, from babies down the hall to the oldest people in here, we really love this room. And so my intention with everything that I say here it is not shock factor, it's not awe, it's not trying to make waves. Everything we say is to just lead all of us into a better life. And so humbly and kindly, it just doesn't matter how you would define God. He gets to define him. He gets to say what he's like. In this section of the Bible, it's going to take us 10 weeks to navigate our way through. Thankfully for us, he is going to define himself. And trust me, let me spoil it. This is going to be really good news for us. Now, Exodus, if you're unfamiliar with it, uh, it is the second book of the Bible. But the first five books of the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, is actually one story. They're not separated. So if you were to read that, it would take you several hours. So if you were going to do that and you're a great student, I would suggest get an app that reads it to you uh, like I do. You can, you can follow along. But if you were over several hours to read those five books, you would see more clearly that this is a story that continues to take place. Now, let me lay something on the table. It's fair if you attempt to get your way through there to find some pretty dry content uh, and want to bounce out of there and get to some more interesting things. I understand that. But there's a reason that every single thing in these first five books is in there. And so when we're going to enter into Exodus, really what we're doing is inserting ourselves into chapter two of a story that started and developing. And so my goal this morning is to take us to Exodus one, but also lead us a little bit into a storyline of Genesis that sets the table and then enters us in to a series of events that some would say the entire rest of the Bible hinges on the clarity of who we see God to be here on these pages. One of the biggest storylines in the book of Genesis is a biography of a man named Joseph. And through a wild series of events at the end of Genesis, Joseph finds himself to be one of the most prominent, powerful people in the world. And specifically, he lives in Egypt. And fortunately for Joseph, he's got such a good relationship with the most powerful person in the world, the king of Egypt, that the king allows prominent Joseph to reach out to his family that aren't Egyptians, they're in a different land called Israel, Joseph's allowed to reach out to that family and bring them to live with him in Egypt. This is the scenario. And so all of Joseph's family, 70, from the oldest to babies, 70 human beings and everything they own, they move from a land of Israel. This family travels to Egypt. They've got a great relationship with the king who separates a piece of land and says, hey, I know you're outsiders, but why don't you come live here? I love Joseph. I love what he's about. I love how he's helping Egypt. So why don't you bring the family here, live and flourish? This is one of the main storylines of the Bible. And Joseph says this at the end of Genesis. That's really going to set the foundation as we enter into chapter 2 called Exodus. He says this, Genesis 50, verse 24. Soon I will die, Joseph told his brothers. Like, that, that's an obvious statement, but what he's saying is there's going to be a day when our entire generation here in the family dies. And so he says, soon 
I will die, Joseph told his brothers, but God will surely come to help you and lead you out of this land of Egypt. He'll bring you back to the land he solemnly promised to give Abraham to Isaac and to Jacob. He says, listen, obviously we're all going to die in this generation. And even though our entire family of 70 people has moved here and is flourishing and doing really well, and, and our, you know, this generation's having babies and they're growing up and they're having babies, while all of that's happening, we will all eventually die. And it's not God's plan for us to stay here forever. It's not God's plan for us to be outsiders, move to Egypt and become Egyptians. Eventually, God's going to step into our situation and draw us to a different land that fulfills a different storyline in the book of Genesis. And as we enter into Exodus, right off the bat, we're entered into that drama of God stepping in and starting to draw this family a different direction. And so we finally made it to Exodus 1. So if you're there, great. If you're not, uh, I will be reading it. Uh, Not the whole chapter, but let me start in verse 6 and we'll, we'll work our way through here. Here's what it says, Exodus 1 verse 6. In time, Joseph and all of his brothers died. He said that was going to happen. Of course, that's going to happen, ending that entire generation. But their descendants, the Israelites, had many children and grandchildren. In fact, they multiplied so greatly that they became extremely powerful and filled the land. So this family that was living in Israel is brought to Egypt, and they're given a really creative name of Israelites simply because they used to be in Israel. And what it says here is over hundreds of years, this family had babies who grew up and had babies who grew up and had babies. And over the course of hundreds of years, this family has now grown to in the millions of people. And so what Joseph said is eventually us here in this generation, we're going to die, but our family is going to flourish and it's going to grow and it's going to multiply. That's happening. But, but here's the problem. One of the most key tensions in all of the Bible here in verse 8. Here's what it says. Eventually, a new king came to power in Egypt who knew nothing about Joseph and what he had done. He said to his people, look, the people of Israel now outnumber us and are stronger than we are. We must make a plan to keep them from growing even more. If we don't and a war breaks out, they're going to join our enemies and fight against us. Then they will escape from this country. So you have a new king in Egypt, hundreds of years after Joseph, who doesn't know the bio. He doesn't know where this family came from. He doesn't find value in this family. He sees a problem when he looks at Egypt. He sees a group of people that now outnumber the Egyptians. He's saying, wait a second, this whole family has come here, and over hundreds of years, they've multiplied so greatly that now there's more outsiders than there is insiders. Now there's more people here of a different culture than the one of the Egyptian culture. And not just the numbers game. If you're a king, you can understand the problem that now he sees. He's saying, man, I have just come into leadership. And and I want to lead, and I want to have power and influence. I also want to pass that down through my family line. So he knows if outsiders continue to grow, and these outsiders are built different. They're like bigger and stronger. Some of us know those gene pools. You know where it's like, that kid's head is 99th percentile, The youth football team's not going to have a helmet that fits that kid. He's destined for the offensive line. And you also know people where it's like, I don't know, gymnastics. 
Like that might be your gene pool. 5-4, maybe go that route. The, the gene pool here, as the king looks out, he's like, not only are there more outsiders than insiders, the genes here are special. They're bigger and they're stronger. And so he knows, wait a minute, we've got a problem. Because eventually these outsiders are going to start to say things like, wait a second, we want somebody in power who's got our best interests in mind. We want somebody in power who looks like us and talks like us and has our kind of culture. He knows this is the road that's coming. So to protect his own power and authority, he's like, we've got to do something. He said, they don't know right now, but they outnumber us. And if they wanted to start a war, they are more capable of overthrowing the most powerful country and empire in the world, far more likely to do that than we would have an ability in Egypt to stop it. And so when he looks out, he sees an issue and decides to do something about it. Verse 11. So the Egyptians made the Israelites their slaves. They take this family that has grown and they put them in slavery. They appointed brutal slave drivers over them, hoping to wear them down with crushing labor. They forced them to build the cities of Pithon and Ramses as supply centers to the king. So, so here's part one. He sees an issue. He says, you know what, my kingship, it, it's insecure here. My future power and authority, it's insecure here. We've got to do something about this people group and this family that has multiplied so quickly over hundreds of years. And so he says, let's just put them in slavery. Maybe this level of oppression will slow down the rate that they're going to want to have kids. Because here's the idea. If they can make these families get up early, work long hours, be punished brutally for things they have or have not done, their hope is that it would discourage parents for wanting to bring little ones into this world. It would make them have conversations as young parents, like, man, this is a really hard life. Maybe it's better we don't even bring kids into this. Maybe it's better to not really love these little ones and want them to have a flourishing life and then watch them step into slavery and struggle. Maybe we just shouldn't have kids. That's the hope. And so punish them. Harsh labor. Beat them and whip them. Make them get up early and work late. This is the idea, but verse 12, but the more the Egyptians oppress them, the more the Israelites multiplied and spread, and the more alarmed the Egyptians became. And so this plan doesn't work. It actually just accelerates the growth and the problem. And so verse 13, the Egyptians worked the people of Israel without mercy. They made their lives bitter, forcing them to mix mortar and make bricks and do all of the work in the fields. They were ruthless in all of their demands. This plan's not working, but you've got to give it to the king for persistence. But he comes to a point where he says, you know, this crew is built different, and maybe even mentally, uh, they're mentally strong to the point that they can deal with some physical harm, and they're not afraid to bring kids into this world that are going to grow up in this lifestyle. But he says, maybe if we switch gears, let's not talk about physical abuse and harm. Let's take this a different direction and see how the Israelites respond. So verse 15, he tries part two. Then Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, he gave this order to the Hebrew midwives, Shifra and Pua. Verse 16, when you help the Hebrew women as they give birth, when you help your family deliver babies, watch as they deliver. If the baby is a boy, kill him. And if it's a girl, let her live. 
about oppression and slavery is accelerating the growth in the power that this family is having as outsiders in Egypt. And so the new plan is to keep doing that. But let's actually just start to approach the source and try and cut off this growth at the source. And the idea is if you can kill every single boy of this generation, and if it could be impossible for this family to start reproducing young boys, then the family line will be killed right here. Like, let's just approach this at the source. Let's kill the family line right here. They're not afraid of the girls because the girls could just marry Egyptians and then fold into that culture. So the king says, I don't want somebody to challenge my throne as a man, and so let's just kill all the boys. I don't want this crew to continue to multiply, so let's just kill all the boys. This is an incredibly dark time in history. The most powerful person in the world, insecure, paranoid, unstable about somebody else taking power and influence away from him so no boys are allowed to live. Let's just cut it off at the source. That's the plan, but something shocking happens in verse 17. But because the midwives feared God, they refused to obey the king's orders. They allowed the boys to live too. So the king of Egypt called for the midwives. Why have you done this? He demanded. Why have you allowed the boys to live? The Hebrew women, they're not like the Egyptian women, the midwives replied. They're more vigorous. They have their babies so quickly that we can't even get in there in time. And so God was good to the midwives. And the Israelites continued to multiply, growing more and more powerful. And because the midwives feared God, he gave them families of their own. So the order comes down from the king to these women whose full-time job is to help their family line deliver healthy babies. This is their full-time job, and the order comes down that if that's a boy, kill that baby in the delivery room. This is the most powerful person in the world delivering some pretty bone-chilling instructions. He's already proven that he sees this family as objects to use. He's already proven that he's going to kill without conscience. He's already proven that he's insecure and unstable. This isn't the kind of ground that would allow these women to feel cool, calm, and collected to defy these kinds of orders. Because he can hurt them and anybody they know and love. He can kill them and anybody that they know and love, but it wasn't their view of him that led them to their decision-making process. Like, of course, the king could torture him. Sure. Of course, this king could put them to death. It, yeah, totally. But they believed some things about God that allowed them to step into really difficult situation with really difficult, powerful leader and make some different decisions. And it's all in this definition of they feared God. Meaning, they believed God was supremely powerful, more powerful than any situation or any king or leader. They believed God was perfectly holy, so different from anybody else, and they believed that he was unshakably good. He, more than anybody else, was worthy to be followed. And so they feared God, which meant they were going to be led by him. They couldn't possibly allow somebody else's leadership who runs the opposite direction or is in contrast to lead them. 
They're too concerned with who God is. They're too concerned with what he's about. They're too concerned about what they know about him. They're too concerned with what he sees and how he feels. And so it leads maybe the most courageous and brave human beings, Shifra and Pua, to do wild things in defiance of the most powerful person in the world because God calls it wrong, so they're not going to do it. Like, let the consequences fall where they're at. Like, if God calls it good and he calls it right, sign me up. Let the consequences fall. If God calls it wrong and evil, then then I'm not going to do it. Let the consequences fall. Powerful leader, powerful situation, scary consequences. It doesn't matter. These women had a belief in God that just trumped any other belief or pattern of situation or people. Some of the most powerful, brave, and courageous women of all time. Like, no matter what you put on the table, they're going to follow the leadership of God because they believed he was supremely powerful. They believed he was perfectly holy and unshakably good. And so they feared him, unafraid of others, unafraid of situations. There's a, a woman named Jackie Hill Perry, who's a really influential leader within Christianity. And I heard her say this, and I've, I've never really forgotten it. it. It's always kind of like rumbled in my mind and drawn me to be better. Here, here's what she says. Imagine who you'd be and the type of life you would live if the only person you feared was God. Imagine who you'd be and the type of life you would live if you only feared God. Nobody else, no other situation. Like you saw him as supremely powerful. You saw him as unshakably good. You saw him as perfectly holy. Like, let the consequences fall where they're at. If he says it's wrong, I'm not there. I don't care what happens. If he says it's good, I'm there. I don't care what happens. I wonder if some of us have given our greatest fear to our situations. I wonder if some of us have given our greatest fear to bank accounts and bosses and teachers and strangers and hypothetical situations in the future and friends. I wonder what would be true of my life right now if I believed what Shifra and Pua did about God. Like, if I honestly believed those things. I didn't just, like, mentally assent to, like, yeah, I I think I believe that as true. But that kind of belief got itself into my decision-making and into my mental processes and into how I felt about what was going on and who was involved. I wonder what would be true of my life if I looked at situations and leaders and decision makers the same way they did. Like I fear God above anybody else and so let the consequences fall where they may. Like he is never out of control. He is never not good and he can do nothing but what is perfectly holy. He doesn't do wrong things. What if I actually believed that? In good days, in bad days, in neutral days, in stressful days. What if I actually feared God above anything and everyone else? One of my favorite parts about the life of Jesus that comes thousands of years later from this story and hundreds of pages forward in the Bible. One, One of my favorite scenes in all of that demonstrates what I think most clearly that Jesus's priority and fear was rightly placed. There's a moment hundreds, thousands of years later 
where Jesus is sitting in a garden hours from when he's going to be arrested and ultimately walk himself to his own crucifixion, and he sits in this dark and quiet garden. And while he's in there, he knows that soon a military force is going to show up. And they're going to come fully armed, and they're going to try to arrest him, and then they're going to ultimately start a process that will unfold where he will be put up on a cross and publicly humiliated and killed in the most brutal way mankind has ever invented. He knows he's hours from that. And yet he sits in this dark garden, quiet, by himself, completely unafraid of what humanity could do to him. Completely unafraid about what a king, a government system, guards, betrayals of friendships, unafraid about what humanity could do to him. He sat there saying, there's a plan of God. He's always in control, even if that lands me on a cross. Like, even if my road equals a cross at the end in the wrath of God for the sins of mankind, even if that's what's coming for me tomorrow, I'm going to trust that he's supremely powerful. I'm going to trust that he's perfectly holy and unshakably good. Like, I'm going to fear him, not the situation. And I love what happens in that garden. Because as he's sitting in there, like he knew was going to happen, a military force comes up. They come rolling in with all the weaponry to arrest him. And one of his closest friends pulls out a sword to try to defend Jesus. Like, hey, you, we're not going to let you take our boy. And Jesus turns to his friend. And he's like, literally put it away. Put it away. You're just swinging that thing around. You think I've lost control. Jesus says to him, I could literally call on the powers of heaven to send hundreds of thousands of angels to fight my battles. You think I'm out of control here. You think a decision can come down the pipe from the king that's going to make me nervous and make me unsure about what humanity can do. You think I'm afraid of beatings. You think I'm afraid of the nails on the cross. He just says, let it play. Because he believed some things about God that allowed him to, in peace, walk forward. There's a fear of God, not a fear of man. There's another story of Jesus. I've actually stood on this hill in Nazareth. We, we read about this in the story of Jesus in the Bible where this group of people, they, they don't want Jesus to keep doing what they're doing. And so they drag him to the top of this hill. Their design is just push him off the backside of this cliff where he will definitely fall and die. The angry mob builds him up there. And then the next sentence is, and then Jesus just walked himself through the middle of them in a way. I love that because they're literally bringing Jesus there to kill him. And somehow Jesus still in full control is like, man, it's not time for me to die. It's not time for me to walk to the cross. And so while they're angry trying to kill him, he just calmly walks through the crowd and walks himself home. I love the picture because it's like, do we ever think Jesus lost control in this whole crucifixion narrative? Do we ever think at any point in his life he was afraid about what humanity could do to him? He was afraid about drawing close to friendships because what if they betray him? Happen. He's afraid about saying what is true. He's afraid about loving people who are on the outside. Do you think he's afraid of that? No, he did that. And he let the consequences fall where they may because behind all of that, 
is a God who's supremely powerful and in control, who's perfectly holy, who's unshakably good, defined as somebody who fears God. The belief led him to the cross, which turned out to be the most tangible demonstration in history of a world and of a God that's supremely powerful, perfectly holy, and unshakably good to you and I. Not only did he demonstrate his belief in God that was that way, but he became that person. And that cross demonstrates that he was that man as well. Now, let me just put one more thing on the table, and then I'm out for the morning. I didn't read the last sentence here of Exodus 1, and so here it is. Verse 22, it says, Then, after the most powerful person in the world, after he was convinced that these women just weren't afraid of him, after he was convinced that he couldn't just say whatever he wanted and people would blindly follow him, after this... Verse 22, Pharaoh gave this order to all his people. Throw every newborn Hebrew boy into the Nile River. Like, not just out of the womb. If they're a baby as a part of this family, throw them into the Nile to be drowned, but you may let the girls live. This is part three. And so part one of the plan is just throw them into slavery and oppress them, but they accelerate the growth and it multiplies. So part two is let's just cut it off at the source. Let's start killing every baby boy who's born in this family. And then part three sounds really similar to part two, but here's the key difference. Pharaoh gives an ability for every Egyptian human being to have authority and power to walk into any room in any house they want. And if there's a baby boy in there that is an outsider from the family of the Israelites, they have an ability to take that baby out of mom's hands, out of cribs, walk them out of their own house, and drown them in the Nile River. Anybody and everybody who's an Egyptian now has power and authority to start killing babies. This is the command that launches us into next week. Let me, let me pray for us. God, it is easy, as you know, for me, it's easy for me to get into situations with, with people that, man, it, it, it's hard to, to fear you, to see you as in control and powerful. It's hard for me to believe when when things don't be going the way that I, that I think they should be going, that like somehow you've lost control. It's, it's hard for me to see you as good when I'm confused about your attributes, when some feel good and some feel difficult, when some feel good and some feel like, man, I, I can't reconcile that with your holiness and your goodness. God, I'm asking that what you do for me and what you do for this room is you allow us kindly and humbly we allow you to just define yourself, that we would get to learn who you are, trust you, trust your attributes, trust that they're all good and for our flourishing. Would we see you through all of our life and our situation and our difficult days and our good days? Would we see you supremely powerful, perfectly holy, unshakably good? Would we fear you more than anybody else in any situation we can come into contact with. God, we love you. We're thankful for Jesus. And it's in his name we pray. Amen.